to chapter 9, 19 even, in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at that this morning. Very much all of those of you who've got in touch with me to ask how I'm doing uh, this week. Uh, I got over the COVID bout pretty quickly, uh, and I, I, I think I'm back up to full speed now. Uh, thank you for your uh, Let's pray before we look at these verses together. Father, we do thank you for that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that washes sinners clean. And we thank you that that is the good news that we find in the pages of this book. Father, may our confidence be in that gospel. And may our confidence as your people be in you. That you reign. Father, we pray now that as we open your word, that we would receive your word as words from the King of Kings from the ruler of the cosmos, from our creator, who knows us, who loves us. Help us then to pay attention to what you have to say to us and bless us, Lord, by your spirit to really take these words to heart. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Now, as we go through the book of Acts, we see the zeal of the first disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? And we see the tremendous impact made by those first missionaries, you know, especially in this second half of the book, who took the gospel out into the world. Uh, and it can be, as we look at just how wonderful all of that was and how dramatic it was, we can forget, I, I think, a little bit, that this is also our calling. This is your and my calling. I mean, I love it that there's a church planting organisation called Acts 29. We're Acts 29. We're the continuing story, aren't we, of this book. We too then are charged with that great commission that Jesus gave his disciples. Do you remember? It's at the end of Matthew's Gospel. We quote it quite often, don't we? We are to, as disciples, we're to make more disciples. That's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples. So, I mean, it's a pretty dramatic start, isn't it, really? But just to say, this is not a social club. Don't treat it as such. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a living and vital body that needs to be about doing what God's called us to do. Let's please never lose sight of that. Never let this turn into a casual thing that you just turn up to if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're welcome. If you don't, you're welcome. Come, come, hear the good news. And one of the things that the book of Acts should be doing for us then, as God's people, is to paint a picture for us. To paint a realistic picture of what living the way he's called us to live and doing what he's called us to do, what that will actually look like as we go about doing it. Now, obviously, there are some differences as we read through the book of Acts, and it's important that we, we register that. We've seen that in this initial period of gospel mission, as the gospel first breaks out uh, into, into the world and into all kinds of different contexts, and sometimes quite hostile settings at times, that God's done some incredible things. There's been powerful signs given, haven't there, on the pages of this book, and extraordinary miracles have been done. And those have accompanied the ministry of the apostles... God's first followers, giving this 
sort of seal of divine authority to all that they've done and all that they've said. You can see kind of how that works, I hope. But these are, and look down at chapter 19, and let me just remind you, because it's been a couple of weeks, I'm sorry about that. And Luke tells us in verse 11 that these things actually, these supernatural things of that kind, have been extraordinary. They're extraordinary, and that is not ordinary. They're not usual. They're not part of the ordinary way that missionary activity tends to go. That is not to say that there's nothing supernatural about what we do when we share the gospel with people. We must, please, never, never think that. Just because there aren't maybe these particularly sort of eye-catching signs that happen, when a soul is converted, never forget, that is the miracle of resurrection. There is no greater miracle than when someone actually comes to the Lord Jesus Christ Everything else is just trinkets and baubles. Please, don't ever be attracted to those things instead, or or rather than the fact that God's gospel changes lives and brings life to dead bones. That is dramatic and wonderful. But there is an ordinary way in which this just happens, and that's kind kind of, I think, what's so special about it. It is so ordinary. Now, of course, God could still do all of those dramatic things, but I don't think they're what we're to expect today. We're given no reason to think that they are. So what is ordinary, as as opposed to extraordinary, I suppose? What does the book of Acts tell us that we should expect if we obey the calling of Christ on our lives and, you know, go and make making disciples the central focus of what we do? What should we expect? Well, I think chapter 19 is pretty good at at telling us that. Uh, And I want you to see three things this morning. The first is that the gospel's going to prosper. The gospel's going to prosper. I'm not saying people are going to prosper. I'm saying the gospel is going to prosper. You know, it was, it was, if you remember just two weeks ago, it was a wonderful and uplifting first half to the story. Chapter 19 is the story of what happens in the city of Ephesus. And it's amazing. I hope you can still remember it. Just giving you the cliff notes, as it were. Paul's arrived in town. He's immediately met a dozen or so disciples whom he's baptised. And then he's spent a couple, perhaps three months, preaching in the synagogue in that city. Now, that didn't work out too well. So they leave and they rent a lecture hall. It's called the Hall of Tyrannus. And that's where things really start to take off, in the hall of Tyrannus. See, here, Paul's able to hold daily discussions for two years. Imagine that. I think someone calculated the thousands of hours of ministry Paul is doing here. It's quite staggering. And Paul tells us in verse 10, look, sorry, Luke tells us even, I mean, this is staggering, All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, I I think we can sometimes just miss how huge that is. What does it mean? Now, I'm not sure about populations, especially back in those days, but that, that province covers an area, look at the map, about the size of England. That's quite staggering, isn't it? For for a two-year job, it's not bad. I mean, I've been here four years. 
I don't think we've even, we've even covered Chesterfield. It's quite embarrassing, really, isn't it? Everyone gets to hear the gospel. You know, think about this. Are you familiar with the book of Revelation? All the, at the beginning of Revelation, you've got letters to the churches. Seven churches receive a letter. Where are those churches? All in that area. They're all there, all in the province of Asia. This is staggering. This is clearly two years of huge impact ministry on the world around Paul. And then in Ephesus itself, remember, you know, a couple of weeks back, this is uh, a city that is, is famous for the practice of occult and magic arts. This is a dark city. And the whole city is turned upside down, we're told. Luke tells us that, that the people of the city are in awe of the name and of the power of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, look at verse 17, just for a little recap there. They were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. A drachma is a day's wages. Try and do the maths in your head. That's probably about 2.5 million pounds worth of magic books, of paraphernalia, that's destroyed by these people as they turn their lives around. This is extraordinary, isn't it? It is. It reminds me of those stories. You have heard the stories. I think it was the revivals in Ireland. In, there's a story in, in Belfast, isn't there, of the revival. The gospel comes to the dockyards in Belfast. And you hear these stories of how the workers from Harland and Wolf, the great big sort of uh, shipbuilders there, they're converted and they start to bring back all the tools that they've stolen. You heard this story? And they actually have to build another warehouse at the docks to house all the returned tools and equipment that people are bringing back because they've, they've turned their lives around. It's dramatic. It's wonderful. Now, this kind of result in gospel mission is not always what happens. Well, we know that, don't we? In actual fact, the book of Acts tells us that. Because there's been plenty of places where Paul has gone and seen very little fruit. I mean, this reminded me, I just wanted to show you this anyway. But uh, we, we did some uh, fruit picking um, from our apple tree in our garden, which is a legendary apple tree. It was a legend in our family anyway. Um, and you, you're picking these apples, and it was the, the tree's full of apples. And some of them are just like, they're smaller than a golf ball, and they're hard, and they're sour, and they're completely useless. But from the same tree, you get something like this. This isn't the biggest we've had, by the way. That is a big apple, isn't it? Same tree. Same place in the garden, and yet just radically different fruit. Why? God knows. <laughs> it's right, isn't it? You know, we're not to, to, to judge things by, by the fruit that happens. We're just to be obedient, aren't we? Paul's been to places where there's been virtually no response, and he's been run out of town. But Jesus taught, and here's the really important point really here. So I just want to bang home first of all. Jesus taught that his kingdom would be a growing kingdom, didn't he? He made that very, very clear. It might start, he says, tiny like a mustard seed, the smallest of your seeds. But nothing will stop it from filling the garden, from filling the earth. 
That's something you always need to keep in mind. That's not down to you, but it will happen. It will happen. Now, there's a lot we can learn from Paul's example here in Ephesus. I mean, first of all, just look at his approach. So he starts in the synagogue and he meets with rejection and resistance there. So what does Paul do? He says, oh, stuff it, I'll just go to another town then. No, he tries another avenue. That's what he does. He gives things a good go and then moves on and he doesn't get precious about it. Three months in the synagogue, but if the Jews won't listen, what's Paul's response? Well, he turns to the non-Jews, and we've seen this before, haven't we? It's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched a burglar at work. I had the privilege in Liverpool of sitting in my uh, bedroom window every now and then and watching people in the streets outside, and you'd see someone coming down the street. I've seen this a few times. Black hoodie, all, all pulled up. And what do they do as they go down the street? Uh, this is a bad example for what I'm trying to illustrate here. But they're, they're going down the street, they're trying every door, every handle of every car, everything, just looking for something to give, for something to open and an opportunity to, to, to come up. That's a weird example, I know. But that's kind of what Paul's modelling for us here. <laughs> just, just not stealing things. It's what we need to do, this, this trying of handles, looking for something to open, to push on every door of gospel opportunity, looking for the one that will open. In this case, when Paul tries the next handle, I mean, the door just swings wide open, doesn't it, in the hall of Tyrannus. There's two important things, I think, here. The first one is, listen, it is okay to walk away from a ministry that clearly isn't working. Something that's perhaps had its day. Something that could be done in a, in, a, in a different way better. That's okay. We've got to keep trying new things and not just sort of think that because we've always done things a certain way, we always must. We mustn't be scared to have a go at things as a church, to rattle those handles, some of which will almost certainly not pan out. There might be a really stupid idea, and that's okay, and it might fail. You might look at the notice board, you know, in the entrance area to the church there. And I've seen people just standing there and going, wow, there's just so much going on here. But no, really all that notice board is, is just saying, look, we're, we're just, we're trying a few handles here. We're just rattling a few handles. None of those ministries on that board there are precious in the sense that they can't be stopped or improved or changed. We don't just keep doing things the way we do them just because it's what we've always done. I mean, look at Paul. I mean, he's going to, it's interesting, isn't it? Here's a Jewish person. It looks like he spends two years never going to the synagogue. Well, he's too busy doing something else, isn't he? Sometimes the wisest thing to do is to walk away from a closed door and find the door that God is opening. And Paul clearly has this sense he knows that God's kingdom's a growing kingdom. The gospel is going to always prosper in the end. But he also knows when an opportunity isn't panning out, when it's not working out, when a door is closing and it's time to move on. He also knows an open door when he sees one, doesn't he? You know, it seems it's interesting if you, if you sort of put the timelines together. 
it seems it was during this two-year stretch, when Paul's having this wonderful ministry in Ephesus, that he pens his first letter to the church in Corinth. Now that church, which he'd previously invested so much in, I mean, he was in Corinth for quite a while too, wasn't he? That church was obviously on his heart. That's why Luke tells us in verse 22 here, look, uh, that he sends Timothy to them in his place, and he sends his right-hand man to go and help them out at, at Corinth. But in his letter, the letter that he writes to Corinth, he explains why he can't come himself. It's in chapter 16, if you want to flick over to it. I think I did put it on the screen, so it'll come up there. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul basically says this to the church there. I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there's many who oppose me. That then's the second thing we can always expect that's ordinary, actually. The gospel will always prosper, but as night follows day, the gospel will always provoke a response. It will provoke opposition. Opposition will come hot on its heels. Now, that's a strange thing, actually, on the face of it, isn't it? That the gospel should provoke opposition. I mean, the gospel is such good news. I mean, those of us who love the gospel, we know what good news it is, don't we? You and I are sinners. We've broken God's law. We're guilty. We're deserving of eternal death. But the gospel tells us that, that Jesus has paid our fine on the cross. He's given his life in our place so that we might go free, so that we might have the gift of eternal life. All we need to bring is our sin. Staggeringly good news, isn't it? Bring your sin, you've got nothing else. Bring your sin to him. All you need to do is put your trust in him. There's forgiveness and hope preached in the gospel. If you've never responded to that, please, don't, don't waste time. But why would that message bring opposition? Charles Spurgeon, a great Victorian preacher and evangelist, a bit of a hero of mine, he wrote loads on the topic of what he called soul winning, an expression he got from the book of Proverbs, to win souls, to evangelise. Listen to what he said. He says this, Reckon then that to acquire soul winning power, you will have to go through mental tor torment and soul distress. You must go into the fire if you're to pull others out of it. And you'll have to dive into the floods if you're going to draw others out of the water. You cannot work a fire escape without feeling the scorch of the conflagration, nor man a lifeboat without being covered by the waves. You know, this is, it, it's, it's, it's ordinary, it's expected. This is what will happen if you go there, says Spurgeon. And we see it here in this chapter, don't we? Evangelism is costly. Sharing that good news, good though it is, is costly because our message provokes opposition. It always has and it always will. And that opposition comes from various different places. You can, you can see a few of them here in this chapter. It comes from the religious establishment. It comes from the world around us. I was talking to a, a friend earlier on this week and I mentioned that I was going to be talking about opposition and, and persecution uh, against the church. And he said... 
Now, it's a really hard thing to do, isn't it, when, when, you're, when you're teaching about that in the West, because we've got it so easy, actually, here. It's hard to speak about enduring opposition and, and persecution when we've got brothers and sisters in churches around the world where they're losing their livelihoods and even losing their lives because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he is right. We've been hugely blessed, haven't we, as a nation, and largely as a result of the fact that we have a long Christian history that has affected our, 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 our way of life. Persecution is, is a horror when you live in a country that's had an anti-God ideology that's been ruling it for, throughout its history. But actually, here's the interesting thing in this chapter. The persecution and the opposition that are seen here, in a number of ways, they're actually quite similar to what we do face in a post-Christian Western situation today. I mean, take a look at them. What form does the persecution take? First of all, in the, in the synagogue, in the first half of the chapter, what form does it take? Well, look at verse 9. Some of them, in the synagogue that is, became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Do you see what they're doing, what the, how the persecution works there? It's to publicly malign. I mean, it sounds frighteningly similar to what we get in our culture, doesn't it? There's no interaction with what's being preached. It's not that people say, hey, come on, let's just sit down and talk this through with you. There's no intelligent engagement like that. There's just this mudslinging thing. Slogans thrown at Christians and at the church. The church that is so full of hate for everybody and full of phobias. And then there's the riot in the second half of the chapter that we were looking at this morning. And what starts the opposition here? What's the engine behind it? Well, Luke tells us, doesn't he? You heard the story earlier. It all comes down to money, doesn't it? Christianity, or the way, as it's called here in this chapter, is just not good for business for some people. Demetrius, this interesting character, he's a, a silversmith, he's worried that if Christianity starts to encroach into the city, if Christian values start to be adopted, it's going to hurt his bottom line and those of the, the of people around him. Luke tells us that the creation of silver shrines for the goddess Artemis is big business in Ephesus. Ephesus was home to, to the great temple of the goddess Artemis, the great mother goddess. And Demetrius, you see, as, as he's painted for us here, what's he doing? Well, he's hiding his real motives, which Luke tells us about, behind this kind of false religious piety that he's got. He's all on the side of, he's actually on the side of, uh, of, of Artemis, isn't he? No, he's not. <laughs> Real Christianity, really what's happening here, is stopping Demetrius from having what he wants. That's the heart of it. His God isn't Artemis. His God is money. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Money is his idol. And the problem with Christianity is that when it comes into a culture, it clashes with all of the idols in a culture. When it comes into our lives, it clashes with our idols. It blows the lid off of false worship and the worship of anything false. 
Why do people oppose us today? Well, one of the reasons is because our message still clashes with all of their idols, with all of the things that they've started to love. Money, sex, power, identity, autonomy. Christianity clashes and always will clash with our world. And it will clash head on with all of those issues. Things that are really precious and dear to the hearts of people now. Always have been, I guess. But Paul is unashamed. You notice that. This is an essential part of the Christian message. He writes, again, when he's writing during these, these days here, he's writing to, to Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul makes this statement to them. He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. I mean, that's dynamite in this culture, isn't it? Well, it's dynamite in our culture if we were to recognise what gods were. But it's absolutely, you know, groundbreaking where, you know, in, in the world that Paul's preaching into, isn't it? Full of gods and idols and temples. We know they're nothing in the world, says Paul. That's the message that's catching people's hearts. So how does our world respond? Well, is it with calm and logical sort of reasoned responses? Again, no, not usually. Sometimes it is. But actually, no, it's more like the mob here quite often, isn't it? What was this mob? It's, it's an interesting story, isn't it? They herd together like sheep. I mean, there's, something starts in the street and everybody's kind of curious, I guess. So they all just gather to find out what's, what's the big fuss, what's going on here. And everyone likes a good protest. Luke tells us that by the time that this riot has really got going, have a look at verse 32. The assembly's in confusion. Some are shouting one thing, some another, and most, most of the people didn't even know why they're there. Um, is, do you not think that might be true of some of the riots we've seen recently? I mean, they kind of know why they're there, but do they really? So how do, we, how do we get them to know why they're there? Well, what do they know? Artemis is the greatest. We can all rally behind that, can't we? Because we've got her temple in our city. She's got our hearts. How do they know that? How do they know she's the greatest? They just do. Yeah, look, there's the temple. We just know. So if you can't reason, well, you win the debate by simply emoting. You shout slogans. Is that familiar? Have a look at verse 34. When they realised uh, that, that this chap in front of them is a Jew, they all shout in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Right? There's no argument or discussion going on. It's just a chant. I think that's so often. Well, you, you see it on the news, don't you? Isn't it interesting that this is nothing new? People just go with the cultural flow quite often without really ever thinking it through. We need to become good at helping people to think these things through, don't we? Just sit down with them. The religion of the masses just rallies around sound bites and slogans and mantras that people just know are true. They just know they're true because I've heard them so often. God doesn't exist. Love is love. My body, my choice. 
We just want reproductive justice. I am who I say I am. I can determine who I am. Trans rights are human rights. They make lovely sound bites, don't they, all of these things? Do people think through, tease out what's really behind these things like that? They're the cultural mantras. Can I just say, you know, it's not that we specifically go out of our way to preach against those things as part of our gospel proclamation. It's just that these idols, these things that have got people's hearts and their minds, will eventually clash with any true grasp of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what will happen. We don't go out of our way to confront people on those specific issues. But ultimately, you cannot have Jesus as your king if you will not turn away from every other idol that is trying to compete with him. If you will not bring every part of your life into submission with his word. That's what those people burning the scrolls understood, isn't it? So the gospel will prosper, but it will also always provoke the world around us, those who hear it. And it will bring persecution against God's faithful witnesses. That's ordinary for gospel ministry. The third thing, another thing you can be sure of, is that the gospel will be protected. Protected. It's very interesting here, isn't it, as this riot all sort of uh, gets going, isn't it? Look at verse, verse 30. Look at, look at Paul. You can see Paul there getting really agitated. He's rolling his sleeves up. He's ready to go. Look at verse 30. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Uh, and it seems actually that there's, there's uh, all sorts of officials in the province who are friends of Paul begging him, don't go into the theatre. Don't go there, Paul. It's not worth it. The gospel will be protected, but it's not, it's not necessarily our role to protect it. Do you see? It reminds me, wasn't it, again, Charles Spurgeon, wasn't it? You know, was it defend the gospel, I'd rather defend a lion. Doesn't he say something like that? Interesting, isn't it? God is the one who will ensure that his gospel is never thwarted or overcome. History testifies to this. Let me share with you just two of my favourite examples of this. The French philosopher Voltaire, quite a character, he once said, he was an atheistic philosopher, he said, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. That's what he predicted. A hundred years after his death, I love this, the French Bible Society bought his house. The sweet irony, it's just brilliant. They set up their headquarters in Voltaire's home in Paris. Or how about this? In 2015, um, you know, the, with the rise of ISIS, the Guardian newspaper reported, "We are witnessing the end of the Christian presence in the East." Staggering, isn't it? That same year, as you know, as the real face of militant Islam was seen for what it was in the East, Open Doors had an article with a report from a pastor in Damascus 
so actually in Syria, he said this, so many people are coming to our churches. We've got a new problem. There's too little space in the churches for all the people to sit during worship services. Incredible, isn't it? His prayer request, we need more chairs. Luke makes this point really clearly, doesn't he? Paul is held back from taking any action. And the city clerk, you know, a man of, I guess, quite a lot of bravery and wisdom, gets the crowds to see sense. And, and this whole mess is sorted out without the church or without any missionary needing to lift a finger. Because God is sovereign and he is protecting his gospel. He always does. Now, so why has Luke put this here? Why has he recorded this for us? Well, most likely he is showing, he's documenting, he's putting down on paper that there is nothing to any of the claims of the enemies of this Christian movement. Christianity does not beget anarchists. It doesn't start riots that they might happen in response to it, but it doesn't start them. Christians are actually good law-abiding citizens. The rumours of unrest that are no, no doubt sort of spreading into the, into the Roman Empire, they actually have their origins in the enemies of the church, not the church itself. This whole episode vindicates the church, doesn't it? That if you remember back in Corinth, in Corinth, it's the Jews who are stirring up the unrest, not the Christians. It's all to do with jealousy and pride. In Ephesus here, it's Demetrius. It's a motivation of greed from this businessman, Demetrius. The Bible teaches, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, says Paul to the church in Rome, live at peace with everyone. That's how we live. And that... In Romans 13, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. We are law-abiding citizens. But this episode in Ephesus also serves to, to, to remind us of the big plot, really, of the book of Acts, of which we are part. The gospel has the power to radically turn people around. It has the power to do it. But the gospel will always be opposed by the world around us. That is normal. And yet God's purposes cannot be resisted. See, there's no way to sugarcoat the reality of what it is to be a faithful follower and witness of Jesus Christ. If we really do it, trouble will come our way. And all I can say is take courage. We may suffer rejection and persecution for the sake of the gospel or for the name of Christ. But this chapter reminds us it will never fall outside of the sovereign plans and control and purposes of God. You know, to be a little bit uh, provocative, I thought I'd just put this slide up. It's my last slide. Just stick it up there. <laughs> I just put that little tag there, hashtag blessed. It's that... Tw it's that Twitter tag, isn't it, that people seem to use in social media when they just know how fortunate they are. Hashtag blessed. Look at me. Look at my lovely family. Look at all these good things in my life. That's blessed right there on the screen. Will we be like the apostles in Acts 5 who are flogged on the orders of the Sanhedrin and who we read left rejoicing because they've been counted 
worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. Why would they think that? Because they trusted the unshakable promises of Jesus Christ. Will we do so? He said this to his disciples. Let's finish with these words. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you.